You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you want to open in your Bibles to James chapter 2, that's where we will be. We've been working through the book of James. We took a little break for the Advent series or season, and uh, we're back. We'll be back in James chapter 2. Uh, I'm not a big reality TV guy, but I did really like the show Undercover Boss. Anybody see that show, Undercover Boss? Where the CEO of a giant company would go and, and dress up, you know, disguise himself, and then, and then go to one of their stores or, or places of business and, uh, and would just come in as an entry-level position, looking very unimpressive, looking very ordinary. No one knows that this is the CEO of the company. And it's just really interesting to see some of the dynamics that would happen. It's really humbling for the CEO to see what his employees actually do and how much skill they really have that actually sometimes the CEO doesn't have. And then what's interesting is he sees the value of his existing employees and managers by how they treat the person that comes in at the lowest level. How do they treat the person who sometimes makes mistakes, who's learning, who maybe isn't uh, as, as knowledgeable as they are. How do they train these new employees? And, and you get that, that tension that makes a good TV show, right, of like these people that sometimes really treat with great value this person that looks very unimpressive, this person that's not getting it exactly right, that's kind of uh, in, in this uh, low position. And then there's some who, who show the value that they have to the company by they just berate the lowest person. They mock them and make fun of them. And then you get, at the end of the show, the, the kind of the comeuppance, right? You get the, the confrontation when all of a sudden the CEO confronts those who mistreated those that were below them and rewarded those that were kind and represented the values of the company. So I don't know if you've ever experienced that where you've been rejected, where you've been rejected by someone. Maybe you've rejected someone based purely on appearances, based purely on first impressions, uh, but that's what James wants to address in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And let me just read it, and then we will uh, we'll jump into it. James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and are not the rich, the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a pretty intense passage. And James the apostle, the brother of Jesus, is writing to these Christians who are scattered around. 
And they're facing a lot of difficulties and temptations. We saw that in chapter 1. And he's calling them to live out their faith, that their faith actually lives itself out in the real world. It's not a pie in the sky. It's not just sort of wait around until Jesus comes. But your, life, your faith is to be alive and to interact with the world. And in chapter 1, we saw that there's a call to joy in trials, that you're, you're to count your trials as your advantage and to your benefit. There's a call to wisdom that comes from God. There's a call to humility about your own position before God. There's a call to steadfastness in the difficulties of life. There's a call to gratitude that every good gift comes from God. And so look to him. There's a call to repentance. There's a call to receive the word, the implanted word, and let it bear fruit in your heart. There's a call to do the word. To, to hear the word and then not do it is, uh, is impossible. It's a contradiction. And then we see the call to true religion, where James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we paused there at the end of November, and now we're picking up the next section, which he starts with the word, my brothers, which means he's bringing up a new topic, but he's also continuing what he's talked about in chapter 1. He's talking about partiality. He's talking in family language. My brothers, we're all in this together. We all have this responsibility before God to live out our faith in this way. This is a new section, but it's also an explanation of how he wants them to be unstained from the world. He, he's, he's continuing that. This is what it looks like to be a doer of the word and to be unstained from the world. Now, we would be tempted to think that if we were going to talk about what it looks like to be stained from the world, we'd think of big, gross sins, right? James doesn't think about those at all. He goes, partiality. What I'm talking about is the unstainedness of the world that should mark the Christians is the kind that uses worldly categories in the church, that uses worldly distinctions on who's valuable and who's not. That's what I don't want you to be stained by. It's interesting, right? That's surprising. We would go to some sort of egregious sexual sin or something else, some sort of violence um, or addiction as being the thing to be unstained from the world. But here he goes, no, how you treat people in your gatherings is what I'm talking about. That's the kind of unstained from the world that I want you to avoid. And so he says, no partiality. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So the question naturally comes in that first verse is, what is partiality? Literally in Greek, it means accepting the face or accepting according to the face. The idea is that you are valuing people based on their appearances, based on what you can see on the outside. You're approving or disapproving of them. You're deciding whether you will have a relationship with them or not, whether you will love them or not, whether you will respect them or not, according to their appearance. Accepting the face, approving or disapproving of someone's value or worthiness based on an external appearance. We actually see this word used in Romans chapter 2 to speak of ethnicity differences. So distinguishing people by Jew and Gentile by ethnicity, and God condemns that. I do not want you to act that way. I do not act that way. We also see it here related to financial standing because he immediately uses the example of rich and poor. So this is the kind of distinction that categorizes people based on their appearance, maybe their ethnicity, their race, or their economic status. Show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some synonyms, just to help you with partiality, because maybe that's a weird word that you don't use every day. 
Other words we might use are bias, prejudice, discrimination, favoritism, judgmentalism, preferential treatment, racism, classism. Those are, that's what's inside this word of accepting according to the face. Rendering judgment on someone's value and whether or not you will love them or receive them based on some sort of external appearance, which is what the world does, right? Don't be stained by that. Don't do that. Interestingly, he says here in verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I just want to pause there before we get into this too far. James is Jesus' brother, his half-brother, right? So he grew up with Jesus. He grows up with Jesus. James is probably one of the earliest letters written. It's one of the earliest evidences we have of what Christians thought about Jesus. And right here we have Jesus' own brother calling him the Lord of glory. I don't know if any of you have a brother, but have you ever in your life been tempted to call him the Lord of glory? I have never been tempted one time to call my brother Matt the Lord of glory. And as awesome as I might be, he's never once been tempted to call me the Lord of glory. So James has grown up with his brother. All that We've gone through that in the past. You can go look at a past sermon on who James is. But this, I think, is huge evidence for the reality that the Christian confession of who Jesus is is real. Because Jesus' own brother goes, hey, remember who I'm talking about? The Lord of glory, my big bro? Like if you grew up with the guy and you knew him and you were persuaded of this, this is evidence that the Christian faith is legitimate because Jesus' own brother goes, that guy is God. So I just think that's a fun little fun fact there, calling him the Lord of glory. Um, so early on, that was the Christian confession. That didn't develop over time. That was the confession from the very beginning of who Jesus is. And Jesus' own biological brother says, him, he's the one we put our faith in. He's the Lord of all glory. He's Yahweh. He is the one true God. He is the Christ. So let's talk about partiality here for just a moment. Um, I want to break this kind of into three sections, but I think his argument basically lays out like this. James banishes partiality from our lives. No partiality. You do not get to show or harbor any partiality in your hearts at all because it's illegitimate. Partiality is illegitimate. It's incompatible with the Christian faith. Let me read one through four again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. They're incompatible. You cannot hold the faith and hold partiality. You have to let go of one. If you want to be partial, that's fine, but you can't have faith in Jesus. You can't call him the Lord of glory and hold on to partiality. Incompatible, illegitimate, you can't do both. And then he gives an example because all of us want to dodge this. I'm not biased. I'm not prejudiced. I know those people are. <laughs> but I'm not. And so he gives an example. And I find this puzzling. I find this example puzzling because I would, I would think, okay, don't be partial and then him to give an example of someone lynching someone else, right? I would expect him to give an example of someone murdering or firing someone or like something really egregious, right? Like don't show partiality in what I mean by this is don't hit somebody of another race or ethnicity with your truck. That's bad. Don't do that, right? But what he does is he goes, how you welcome people at church, that's what I'm concerned about. Not to say that those big things aren't, but this is where he goes. 
When he's talking about being unstained from the world, he doesn't go for the big sins. He goes for what would, in our minds, be little sins, which is how do you welcome people at church? Do you think about that at all? And here's the example. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly. So this is how do we greet at church? A man coming in with a gold ring and fine clothing and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. You've got two people coming in at the same time. One you recognize. You recognize his face. You receive him according to his face. Maybe he's, you recognize him. He's popular. He's refined. He's got possessions and one person doesn't. They don't maybe smell the greatest. They don't look very nice. Nobody wants to sit by them. They both come in. What do you do in that moment? And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, the idea of shining, like angelic clothing is kind of the idea, shining white clothing, and rings, rings were a sign of prosperity and power back in those days. In fact, you could go, if you were going to go to a party, there were little booths where, and stores where you could rent some rings so you would look higher up the status ladder than you could. There's, there's a way to do that. We have that, right? We rent tuxedos. We, do, we have ways of doing that, right? Of making ourselves look a little bit better. And so this is the idea of someone who's prominent, powerful, recognizable, popular, and someone who really isn't valuable at all. In fact, that's the idea. The poor man literally could be the worthless man. This person does not have any value to anyone. They come in. What do you do? What do you do? Your faith in Jesus is on the line here. Like, if you hold on to partiality, you can't call yourself a Christian here. So what do you do? In your assembly of Christians, what do you do? The one who sits in fine clothing, you here sit in a nice place. Everyone will recognize you. We want our church to win. Having you on our team helps. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it's not an extreme example. It's a very ordinary example, an example that's happened this morning just a few minutes ago. The valuable person and the worthless person. How do you treat them? So consider the temptation for a moment. Who's the audience? Struggling Christians. He started the book with suffering and trials, right? So this is people who have a hard go at it. We're going to see that throughout the book. But these Christians have a hard time. This is a difficult time to be a Christian. So imagine the temptation that someone walks into your gathering who could game change the whole thing. With one check, that person could just make everyone's life in the church a whole lot better. You see the temptation? Who, what kind of glory are you going to trust? The glory of Christ or the glory of this person? Boy, if we could just get the all-star to join our church to give a little bit, just so we could get some nicer seats and maybe we, could, maybe we could have more food available to us. I get the temptation here, right? <clears throat> Versus the poor person who comes in who will just be a further tax on the system. We're all poor. The last thing we need is another poor person here, right? Do you see the temptation? One could make our Christian life a whole lot more comfortable and the other one is just going to make it a little bit more challenging, who will we prefer? I think in our American church, we have a morbid fascination with celebrities. If we could just get the pro athlete to talk about Jesus during the press conference, during the Super Bowl, then people would think Christianity is cool. We would win. If we could just get the guy with the gold rings and the shining clothes, 
then maybe Christianity wouldn't be so hard and more people would like it, right? What if we got the celebrity to come speak in our town? Then we could get all our friends together and then they would think Christianity is great, right? We have the same insistent, incipient desire because we don't want to take up a cross. We don't want a Christianity that requires a cross. We want a Christianity that's comfortable, And if people can come in and make this a little cooler, a little more secure, a little more comfortable, boy, that's a real temptation. Especially if the alternative is someone, why would you have, why would you choose David if you could have Goliath, right? Pick worldly power. Pick that. Consider Christians embrace, you remember Kanye West claimed to become a Christian a couple years ago, right? Everyone's like, yes, finally, we're cool. Right? We got one of the big rappers. We got one of the big names. We're legit now. That guy's kind of totally torpedoed himself, right? But we're so quick. We really want to have someone on our team that will win, right? Someone that will get our legislation through, and we will, someone that will get this done for us, someone that will make our life better, Christianity more respectable, something that will help us win. We really want that person on our team, right? And we make foolish decisions of receiving them based on externals and what they can do for us as opposed to representing the heart of God, right? We do that all the time. The rich person with prestige and power and influence can make your life so much better, can make your church so much better. You could win. The poor person, boy, that's just another drain on the system. That's another mouth to feed. That's another person with problems. And I kind of need me some me time, right? I need... And so what do you do? What do you do? James is not pulling any punches here. He goes directly to the heart of the issue. How easy it would be to see the guy who's very, near, very needy and want to steer clear. You have enough going on. We already have plenty of needy people. Heck, you aren't even getting your needs met to the level that you would like. Let's avoid. Let's keep it casual. Hope they go away. I love what is said by F.B. Meyer in one of his devotionals. This is from a long time ago, but listen to this. It's a little longer, but I think it gets to the heart of this. There is nothing that men dread more than poverty. They will break every commandment in the Decalogue rather than be poor. But it is God's chosen lot. God had one opportunity only to live our life, and he chose to be born of parents too poor to present more than two doves at his presentation in the temple. All his life was spent on being among the poor. His chosen apostles and friends, with very few exceptions, were poor. He lived on charity, rode in triumph on a borrowed donkey, ate his last meal in a borrowed room, and lay in a borrowed grave. Hath not God chosen the poor of the world? Why is poverty so dear to God? Because it is in harmony with the spirit of the gospel. The world's spirit aggrandizes itself with the abundance of its possessions. Its children vie with each other in luxury and display. The spirit of Christ, on the other hand, chooses obscurity, lowliness, humility, and with these, poverty is very closely akin. It compels one to a simpler faith in God. The rich one may trust God, but the poor man must. There is so much temptation to the well-to-do classes to interpose their wealth between themselves and the pressure of daily need to put our wealth between us and our needs. 
But the poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. He waits on him for his daily bread and gathers the manna falling straight from the sky. He gives more opportunities of service. The rich are waited on and pay for servants to wait on those they love. The poor, on the contrary, are called to minister to one another at every meal and in all the daily activities of life. Herein, they become like the one who was and is one that serves. And who became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. So, so partiality is illegitimate because it denies Jesus' lordship. You can't hold the two together. In, in so doing, you are respecting worldly glory over Christ's glory. That's why he says he's the Lord of glory, right? You've got two glories that you can choose from. You can choose the glory of Christ, which is humble service, lowliness, or the glory of the rich man that comes in, of comfort. You are placing yourself as worthy judges, unworthy judges, judges, he says. If you're committed to showing any kind of partiality, that's no problem. You just have to release your hold on the Lord of glory. Partiality is a denial of Jesus. You do not get to choose who you will and will not love. But James, here's the question we might ask. James, let's be real. Haven't some people earned some respect? Shouldn't we be good stewards of the responsibilities that we have? Don't you want us to be prosperous, safe, and comfortable? If we treat rich people and poor people the same, then aren't we just creating or incentivizing a welfare system or a lack of productivity? I don't think James says that at all. There's other scriptures that speak to that, but James is putting his heart on a real issue in this church. And that brings us to verses 5 through 7, where partiality is not just illegitimate, but it's illogical. Here's what he does, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. So he, he kind of grabs us by the collar and goes, I'm talking about you. You want to dodge this. You don't show partiality. But he grabs them by the, listen, my brothers, and he puts a finger right in their chest. I'm talking about you and the partiality that you show each and every day. Here's what he says. This is why partiality, partiality is illegitimate, but it's illogical. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. That's very direct. You, readers of this letter, you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is putting his finger right in their chest and going, I'm talking about you. Don't, don't, don't deflect don't look away. Look at this. Look at what you do all the time of judging people based on their appearances. Don't dodge this because he knows what they're like. He knows this is easy to do. And this is not hypothetical, but really, verse 6, you have dishonored the poor among you, and you're the poor. That's the illogicalness of this. This distorts God's kingdom. Do the math. Who is Jesus? Lord of glory. Whose is the church? Jesus's. So whoever he brings in, who rightly confesses him and comes under his lordship, you have to receive him, them. Who did God tend to bring the people in, which was the poor? If you reverse this, you, you deny Jesus' lordship, you make yourself lord, and you're no longer a legitimate church. You're rejecting who God accepts, and you're accepting who God rejects, based on externals, which means that you're denying the kingdom. It's illogical. Why would you do this? 
Why would you, supposedly the embassy of the kingdom, reject those God sends you and accept those God wants confronted in their sin? It's illogical. In fact, these are the very people who are oppressing you and you're rewarding them by, with honor. It's illogical. It's illogical practically. It's illogical spiritually. It's illogical in the kingdom. Lastly, and here's where he really goes hard. Now, if you thought, if you thought that was tough, we've got one more section here. Partiality is also illegal, verses 8 through 13. So now he goes to the law. It's illegitimate with the claim that you trust Christ. It's illogical. doesn't make sense in light of what you've seen God do. Third, it's illegal. If you really fulfill the royal law of the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Good. That's the, that's the target. That's where the gospel is taking you, is love of neighbor. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. Then look what he does. Verse 8. You, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. So lest you think that you can be partial with people, he puts that to the side, you can't. Lest you want to be partial with the law and go, well, at least I didn't kill anybody. Right? No, you break any of the law. It's like a windshield. Once it's cracked, it's cracked. You try to sell your car and then go, that's a cracked windshield. Well, only like 1% of it's cracked, actually, if you look at it molecularly. Right? No, a cracked, a cracked windshield is a cracked windshield. A broken law is a broken law. And he goes right here, lest we be, be tempted. His readers would be tempted to dismiss this, to dismiss their own partiality, and he just will not let them wiggle out of this. It's illegitimate, it's illogical, it's illegal. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point becomes guilty of all of it. For he, meaning God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Which makes total sense, Right? I don't know if you've, any of you have been following the Idaho murder case or whatever, but they captured a guy and they got trial and they're gathering the evidence. It would be ludicrous for him to stand before the judge and go, yeah, I murdered those four people, but I didn't have sex out of marriage. Well, yeah, that's not the, <laughs> you broke the law, right? You might go, you know, officer pulls you over and you, you, for speeding, you were going 10 miles over, but you're like, there are so many speed limit signs I didn't go over. Listen, Judge, you should have seen how many people in Idaho I didn't kill. Doesn't make sense, right? But we're tempted to excuse our partiality because it's not as bad. We're tempted to be partial, not just with people, but with the law. And James won't let us do that. And he goes to this idea of murder, I think because partiality is in some ways kind of a form of murder. Remember Jesus said that if you harbor anger in your heart, that in some ways it's such a dishonoring act for a Christian, an image bearer, based on appearances, to demean another image bearer is like, like Jesus said, it's a heart sin. And you've broken the law. Which, well, there's you know, a strong word up there, partiality is illegal because it damns your soul. You're breaking the whole law of liberty. The whole point of loving your neighbor is to set you free. Your own partiality puts you in a prison where you're only with people that are like you. What a horrible prison. Where everyone just has to live up to your standards? Gross. You're the sum total of who is and isn't accepted and rejected? What a prison you put yourself in, right? But this law of loving your neighbor, this law of like, 
loving the Lord of glory and now being able to look past exterior partiality means that you have a whole world opened up to you. The law liberates you. It sets you free from you and your sin. For judgment is without mercy for the one who shows no mercy. So if you show no mercy to others, that's evidence that you haven't received God's mercy for yourself, which means you stand under judgment. And if you want to know which side of history to land on, land on the side of mercy. That's the idea. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you want to live in the land of judgmentalism, enjoy your prison and your separation from God forever because that's sinful. If you want to be a merciful person that experiences the mercy of God, reflect that. Receive that mercy by grace and extend that mercy to others. Do you see the connection between root and fruit here? Don't break the whole law of liberty and live in a prison of your own making, of your own partiality. And escape judgment because mercy will triumph over judgment. So bottom line, I think from this passage that James just goes right at us, I mean, he is very clear by again and again just pressing in deeper and deeper the sinfulness of partiality. The bottom line is deal with partiality in your own heart and in your community immediately and entirely is what he's saying. You got to get that out and deal with it. Banish partiality from your speech. He says that, right? In all your speech and all your actions in relation to people or the law, banish it. Banish partiality. Playing favorites. Keeping score. Banish partiality in all your actions and how you treat people, even in subtle ways, in relation to people or the law. Because here's what happens is partiality sins against the poor person by demeaning them. Partiality sins against the rich person by exalting them. Partiality sins against yourself by putting you in bondage and judgment, and partiality sins against God by breaking his law and rejecting his mercy. It's terrible. It's a terrible sin to be partial. So, like James, let me ask some questions just to examine our own hearts to see if there's partiality in our own heart. Might there be economic partiality in our own hearts? Are all your friends in the same income bracket as you? There's intellectual partiality. Are all your friends at the same educational level as you? Political partiality? Are all your friends have exactly the same political persuasions as you? I think there can be a spiritual partiality. Do you hang out with people who are more or less mature than you? Do you hang out with people who are maybe in different categories at different places in the journey? Or do you really kind of stick to just your people? Popularity, partiality, do you prefer to be around people that are known and admired? There's a productivity partiality that can come up in our hearts. Do you reject people who have a different work ethic than you? Maybe they're not as driven as you are, and so you put them down or in a lesser category. Or maybe people are more productive than you, and you're kind of jealous of them. <clears throat> that can be a form of partiality. There can be an ageist partiality. Do you exclude or ignore people that are older than you? Do you tend to limit your relationship with kids because they're kind of a hassle? Or teens? Do you sort of, do you sort of say backhanded comments about teenagers that are a little disparaging? Do you really just prefer your own age group? There can be a gender partiality where you treat men and women, boys and girls. Do you treat them with equal respect and dignity? 
Do you, did you choose the house and neighborhood you live in based on partiality? The people have a certain look and affluence that you're comfortable with. Or maybe you want to distance yourself from a certain kind of people. Did you choose your kid's school based on partiality? They have the look and affluence of the place that you want your kids to be. Did you choose this church based on partiality? Does it have the right kind of people in it and not too many of the not quite right people? I'm going to be honest. What about your small group? Does your small group kind of all look basically the same? In the past month, in your Christmas gatherings, was it all just people that were just kind of in your normal circle anyway? Or did the gospel cause you to grab some people that maybe are not normally in your circle? What about a church? Do you talk to the same five people every time? Is it only those in your own life stage or race or income bracket? Do you recognize, do you just receive according to the face? Is it only those you know? How about who your kids hang out with? Would you be concerned if your kids befriended someone of a different ethnicity or social background? What if they began to get into some sort of relationship with someone? There was one survey I heard that American, Christian American parents would be more opposed to a relationship uh, if their kid started a relationship with someone of a different political persuasion than if it was a different religion. Parents are more concerned about the political affiliation than the religious association of their kids. That's just where we're at right now. You walk into a store, and there's two salesmen there to help you. One is the tall, blonde, white guy in his late 20s. One is the, shoulder, the shorter, older Native American man. Which one do you approach for help? Why? If I resigned as your pastor, and what was brought forth was a black man, or a Native man, or a Hispanic man, or an Asian man, would that change the dynamic for you? Would you trust that person more or less? Ligon Duncan says this, if you want to deny the faith, how would you do it? You wake up one morning and you decide, I'm done. I deny the faith. How would you go about doing that? Would you renounce your membership? Would you write a booklet or pamphlet criticizing the central tenets of Christianity? Do you join the local atheist club? Well, James in this passage tells you that one way you could do it is by showing favoritism towards some and bias towards others. James counts that as a fundamental denial of the gospel. To show favoritism is a denial of the faith and the gospel. He goes on to say, My friends, one way to test your grasp of God's mercy is to ask how you treat other sinners. How do you respond when you encounter people who are different from you, different in ways that you don't like and aren't comfortable with and are beneath you? How do you respond? Usually our response is favoritism a shallow, superficial discrimination based on externals. James is going right at our hearts here in a way that we can't dodge. My final question is this. How can we kill partiality? How can we kill partiality? Here's the reality is that we've all broken God's law. If you look at James, those verses 8 through 13, who can keep this law? Who can keep this law? We've all sinned. In many ways, right? If it really is a, a one-and-done kind of thing, then we're all under judgment. 
not just for partiality or sexual immorality or, or murder. Like we are, have broken God's law. And our only hope is to go to the Lord of glory. And the way that we kill partiality and any other sin, any other breaking of the law is this. Enjoy the incomparable glory of Christ. That's what he said in verse 1, right? Hold to the faith. Hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. His glory will overshadow all other glories. You don't have to be enslaved to whoever walks into the room. You are free. His glory overshadows the shame of all sin. His life, his death, his resurrection. Hold to the faith of the Lord of glory. And all of these other sins will begin to fade. So enjoy the incomparable glory of Christ. Secondly, maybe you're seeing a pattern here. Display the impartial grace of God. Display that. That's what he said in that second section, right? The illogicalness of receiving those that God rejects and rejecting those God. No, we now have the opportunity as a church to demonstrate the heart of God by receiving those whom God sends to us impartially, not based on their face. You were not, you were not received because of your face. You were not received or excluded because of your, what you brought to the table. God received you by his grace and now he tells his church to do the same. Display the impartial grace of God with kindness and generosity and favor. And James would say, yeah, even when you greet outside the doors, that's where I want you to start, is how you greet the person that walks in the door to your worship. And third, share the inverse, invincible mercy of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is invincible. So plant your flag there. Banish judgmentalism, complaining, slander. Quit comparing people. Quit talking behind their back. Be a person that plants your flag in God's mercy and then be an agent of sharing that same mercy to others. Is share the invincible mercy of God, his victory, his disposition, his mission to extend it. Listen to what Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 says. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison. Who wants to sit next to a person in prison, right? Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And celebrate the partiality and killing ordinances of the church. That's what church membership is really all about. Baptism is both humbling and affirming, isn't it? You have to go down under the water and come up wet. Nobody looks great in that moment. It's a humbling thing to have someone else put you to death and bring you to life. But it's also an affirming thing that I belong now, right? The reason I say this is because Galatians 3 connects this right here, the, the impartial nature of God and baptism. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, in, G, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no Jew nor Greek. There's no slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Baptism blows up partiality. Because none of us are too good for it. And none of us are too far away 
and too bad for it. It levels all of us as identifying ourselves with the Lord of glory. Not any better than anyone else, not any worse than anyone else, gathered at by him, leveled, brought in impartially to live out together. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper is being abused because people are using it to break the fellowship. The rich people are having communion without waiting for the poor people. And then when the poor people get there, they don't get to participate. And Paul just gets very angry at this, that they are leveraging the unifying nature of the Lord's Supper to create distinctions, to be stained by the world in how they do this ordinance. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because I don't, I don't know what it is that you think you're doing, but it is not the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He goes on to then explain a little bit further and ends with this. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, at the same table. Nobody higher than anybody else, nobody lower than anybody else. He says, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So receive the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his benefits. He receives us not according to our appearances and nor according to our works, not according to our sins, but according to his grace. And he brings us into a family where we now have the opportunity and the responsibility to hold that out. We cannot be partial. And he has given us ordinances in a church. He's given us a fellowship and resources to be able to banish the, world, the worldly stain of partiality. When someone walks into our church, they're walking into a different kingdom with different values. And the world's kingdom values get checked at the door. Hopefully they don't get picked back up either. The things that matter a lot in the world don't matter a whole lot in God's kingdom. And the things that matter a whole lot in God's kingdom don't translate out there. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Plant our flag in mercy, the mercy of Christ. So we would end with this. Okay, James, let's say we treat everyone the same and we end up with a whole bunch of really needy and uncomfortable people. What do we do then? Come back next week as he talks about what living faith looks like when your brother has a need. He will lead us into what that looks like next week. When you see a brother in need, what your responsibility is. So he's taking us on a journey. The rest of James of chapter 2 will do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. It's a very direct and challenging word. I know that I am convicted, have been convicted all week as I've wrestled with your word this week and I know that this comes with a certain level of intensity, but God, we pray that that would be redemptive in our hearts, that it would cause us to see, um, see our sin and to confess it, to repent of it, and to be freed from it. That the love your neighbor as yourself would then become a liberating thing, not something we begrudge in the flesh, but something we delight in in the spirit as we welcome those whom you have sent us regardless of what kind of worldly gain or privilege they may bring to us, let us just receive. Lord, help us to just receive those whom you have received. 
And God, we pray that if there's anyone in here who has not been received yet by you, Lord, I, I pray that they would hear you call them into mercy. Call them out of the prison of their own sin, maybe the prison of their own partiality. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of that sin and then dislodge them from it, set them free. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, for the indwelling Holy Spirit, and for the local church that helps us combat our natural sinful tendencies. God, set us free, help us to live well, and may the kingdom of God expand in ways that we would have never expected and we would have never calculated in our own strength. We look forward to seeing the Lord of glory work among us, and we look forward to seeing mercy triumph over judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.